Our greatest needs are relational. You know, our bodies present us with all kinds of physical problems. Um, I've got my set of problems. You've got yours. Seeming, seemingly never-ending cascade of challenges and ailments and problems related to our bodies. And uh, those challenge us quite a bit, but our greatest needs in this life are really relational. The hardest questions that we ask ourselves are questions like, who am I? Do I matter? Does anyone notice me? Does anyone care about me? Am I loved in this world? Does God see me and hear me and care about me? Does God love me? We want to know who we are and who God is and if we matter in this universe. Those those questions and their answers get to the very core of our being. What if God, what if Jesus is core to your very being? What if he is the one who can answer the most important questions that you ask about yourself and fulfill the deepest longings of your soul? What if God is more than just an intellectual exercise and a subject to be debated? You know, that's how a lot of people and that's how a lot of us are used to approaching the subject of God as an apologetic subject to be batted around and debated online or through books. What if God is more than just an explanation of how everything got here? What if God, also, what if God is more than just a means of getting what we want? You know, someone that we pray to when we have something that we need, someone who can get us back to equilibrium and then we just kind of go on with our life. What if he's more than that? Life is really hard and this world is broken and it's really easy for us to develop an untrue perspective on ourselves and start thinking that we don't matter, that no one cares about me, no one sees me, that we're unimportant and unloved and unseen, and to think that God is distant and doesn't care. And when we feel that way about ourselves, then it's very easy and maybe even likely that we start to take that out on other people and we abuse other people, or we take it out on ourselves and we start to abuse ourselves because we start believing that we don't matter and that God doesn't care. And then we seek some kind of consolation or refuge in some kind of addiction or destructive pattern that we think will help us in the short term, but in reality just sends us spiraling downward. And still that great longing in our soul remains.
if you can identify with any of those thoughts, if, if, that's, if that's where you are, I wonder if you'd let me introduce you to Jesus today. He might turn out to be more than you thought. He might be able to do for you more than you thought he could do. And he might want to do something for you that you never would dare to ask him to do. I'm going to read from the Bible. I'm going to read from a book of the Bible uh, called the Gospel of Luke, the very end of chapter 8. If you have a Bible with you today, you can locate that passage, the end of Luke 8. If you don't have a Bible with you today or don't have one on your phone, that's okay because the the words will be up here on the screen. You'll be able to see them just like everyone else. I'm going to read a section of the Bible that's about Jesus. It's about a particular day in his life. It's about a day in his life when there were a couple of women who really needed help from him. And what we see him take time to do changed someone's life. And the reason that we have this account is because he wants to change yours. This is Luke 8, beginning in verse 40, going all the way through the end of the chapter, okay? If you're able to stand this morning um, and willing, let's stand for the reading of the word, and then we'll talk about what it means. Luke eight forty. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James, the father and mother of the child. All were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. 
and her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Father, we come to you by faith, and we say that we love you. We say that we're thankful for this account. We say that we're thankful for the Savior who the account highlights and shows to us. Thank you that the promise remains and is just as real. The promise of healing is just as real today as it was on this day that we're reading about. And I pray that you would accomplish that purpose among us today for Jesus' great glory, for we ask in his holy name. Amen. All right, please be seated. You may have noticed that there's an interesting sequence that's at work here in this account. Um, The two stories of the women are intertwined. Jesus finds out about one need, and in the middle of working on that need, he stops and takes care of another need, and then goes back to the original need. Okay, so we could say that he multitasks here. Their stories are intertwined. He doesn't just deal with one thing and then move on to another. They, they happen in an intertwined way. And what we want to realize regarding the, the format of the account is that the format serves to highlight what's in the middle. The story of the little girl, Jairus' daughter, is like a picture frame on the outside. It frames what's in the middle for the purpose of highlighting what's in the middle. The outside story, the healing of Jairus' daughter, allows us to see what's in the middle in all of its beauty. It brings out the beauty and truth of the middle story in a way that's not possible if the middle story stood alone. So this middle story, the healing of the woman with a hemorrhage, is set within the framework of another need, another healing. And our goal is to drink in all of the truth and the beauty that's present in this middle story so that you can be introduced to Jesus and who he is to you. So that's, that's the goal. And here's how we're going to work toward that goal of seeing all of the beauty of this middle story and applying it to to you today. We're going to notice first what the two women have in common, the points of comparison between the two. And we're going to move on and notice the contrast between the two of them, where they differ from each other, these two women, okay? So the points of comparison, the points of contrast, and finally, we're, we're just going to try to figure out what's the main point. What's the point of the encounter between Jesus and the woman with the hemorrhage, okay? So we'll start with what the two women have in common, and this won't take long. These things are, are pretty obvious. Obviously, they're both females. Obviously, they're both suffering, We could even say that they're suffering greatly. We read that the little girl is dying in verse 42. 
That's one kind of extreme suffering. We read that the older woman has been suffering for a long time without any respite. That's another kind of, kind of extreme suffering. So, suffering because of its longevity and apparent helplessness. It seems to be a suffering that won't ever end. And so we have these two female sufferers and they're linked by this one other thing. This matter of time. The one is about 12 years old and the other has been suffering this discharge of blood for about 12 years, we read. And that links them together as well. And we might wonder, okay, why does all this matter, the fact that they have all these things in common? Well, they are indicators, seeing that they have these things in common, that they have this common ground, that's an indication that it will be important and profitable to view these two stories in comparison and contrast with each other. Because the women share certain things in common, we realize we're not looking at two random events. We're not looking at events that can be viewed in isolation from each other. Their stories are forever intertwined. And the things that they share in common give us license and even direction to dive further into the stories of these two women and notice not only what they have in common, but also the points of contrast between them. And this is where the real beauty starts to emerge. So yes, they have these things in common, but notice the points of contrast. First of all, think about this little girl. Think about this little girl who we meet first. What does she have? Well, one thing she has is a powerful father. His name is known. His name is Jairus. His job was ruler of the synagogue. That's what we read in verse 41. Think about how much power he had in this town. He was the ruler. He was the ruler of the synagogue. This is an area probably in the northern areas of Israel, north and east of Galilee. So not in Jerusalem, completely different part of the region. Up north, there's a synagogue up there where they can be instructed in the law. This man Jairus is in charge of that place. She's the only daughter. She's the only daughter of a powerful father. Think about the importance of this girl. She's basically a princess. She's got a powerful father. Because that's true, she has, also has resources. Money is not going to be an obstacle for her healing. She has resources available because of who her father is. She not only has a powerful father, she not only has resources, she has an advocate. She has someone who has gone to Jesus on her behalf and is begging him for help. Now, just because she has a powerful father, that doesn't necessarily mean that that powerful father will also turn, in and turn out to be an advocate It doesn't necessarily follow, but he has turned into an advocate. So this little girl has 
power on her side. She has resources. She has an advocate. You know, she also has a community. She's not alone. She's got a father, and we learn later that she's got a mother. And there are servants that come on the scene at verse 49. And there's a a community of friends and family back at the house who are watching and keeping watch, and they turn out to be mourners. But her illness has not created a crisis just for her. It's created a crisis for the, the larger community of which she is a part. She has power, she has resources, she has advocates, she has a community. And she's young, she's just 12. She has all of the the tide of public interest and support on her side. All of the momentum of the crowd is to take care of this precious girl, the only daughter of the ruler. And rightly so, we would join in with that crowd and say, yes, go take care of her. She's only 12 and she's about dying. So go take care of her. her. Her privilege and her resources that we're talking about, they're not her fault. We're not indicting her and saying that's bad because she's in a privileged position. It's not a fault, it's not an indictment, they're merely a contrast. A remarkable, stark contrast to this other suffering woman. She has no resources. Her money is gone. We read about that at verse 43. Though she had spent all her living on physicians... She could not be healed by anyone. She has no resources. She has no power. She's got no name here. She has no status in town. Notably, she has no advocate. There's no one pleading her cause before Jesus. If she's going to be healed, she's going to have to approach on her own. She has no cleanness. According to the law of Moses, because of her discharge of blood, she is continuously unclean. This is Leviticus 15, 19. She's been continuously unclean unclean for 12 years. And what's more, according to that same law, anyone who touches her also becomes unclean. So not only, this means that not only does she have no resources, no power, no advocate, and no cleanness, she has no community. No one can touch her without becoming unclean. She's alone. She has no community to share the suffering, to mourn, to plead, to help. She is helpless. And it would be very understandable if she confessed to having no hope anymore. 
so many experiences with physicians, only disappointment. And now at the end of her resources, having spent all of her living, she can't even try that route again because she has nothing left to spend. And she may have just settled into this condition. There is no hope for me. And so now we begin to see how framing this woman's story against the backdrop of someone with great privilege really highlights her neediness and her aloneness and her helplessness. And I think that we can say with confidence in summary that her one great lack, the lack from which all of her other problems flow is that she has no father. That is the one great advantage that the little girl has over her. One of these women has a powerful father, someone to call her daughter, someone with resources, someone with power, and a community. And the other, the other woman has no one in this account to own her as daughter, to care for her, to love her, to advocate for her, to move heaven and earth to see that she's helped. One has a great father, and the other has none. Do you see these two women? Now, the tension in the account is who's going to be prioritized? Time is ticking by, and the daughter of the powerful man is dying. There's urgency there to go and help her, but power has gone out from Jesus to some nameless, faceless person in the crowd, someone who's not been advocated for, someone whose dad is not Jairus, someone who just snuck up from behind, someone who thinks that they do not matter to anyone else, let alone Jesus. Certainly not to God. Hasn't been able to approach God in her uncleanness. And the stunning thing that we see happen is that Jesus stops. He stops attending to the urgent need of the powerful man. He stops all of the momentum of the crowd to seek out the poor and helpless one. And I think that the great question that anyone who studies this account has to try and answer is, why? Why does he want to have this encounter with this woman? Why does he want to see her? Especially because she's already been healed. We read that at verse 44, that as soon as she touched the fringe of his garment, immediately her discharge of blood ceased. She's already been healed. Why does he want to see her? Especially because she's already been healed. And there's another woman, a young, precious, well-resourced woman who hasn't been healed yet. This woman's mission has been accomplished. She got what she wanted from Jesus, the physical healing of her body. She got what she wanted, but Jesus hasn't gotten what 
he wants yet. She's done with him, but he's not done with her. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the point of this encounter between Jesus and the older woman that we see in verses 47 and 48? So far as I can tell, the point of the encounter is that though she's already been healed physically, Jesus wants to heal her relationally. He wants to call her daughter and give her a place in his family and in his kingdom. And he does it all with one word, daughter. Daughter is the most important word in this passage. The word daughter in verse 48 is the most important word in this passage. It represents who the woman was not at the beginning of the passage and what she now is. This is the only time, this is the only recorded time in any of the Gospels where Jesus calls someone daughter. There are times when he calls some groups um, daughters of Abraham or daughters of Jerusalem. This is the only time he uses the term daughter as a term of ownership, as in my daughter. For all that she lacked at the outset of the passage, for all of her uncleanness and powerlessness and loneliness and helplessness, Look who she is at the end. She is a a daughter of the Most High King. The world and the king stop for her, who formerly did not think that she mattered and who was without hope. And the embarrassed, ashamed, alone woman is given a new identity. She is a daughter of God. Now, she has a powerful daddy, too. Not by birth, but by faith. And because of her faith in Jesus, this is also true for you, because of her faith in Jesus, now she has power and she has resources and she has an advocate, and she has cleanness, and she has a community, and she has hope, and she has a name, and she has a father. He stops so he can call her daughter, so he can communicate in the most loving and tender way, you matter to me. I will own you. You are mine. Our deepest needs are not physical. They are relational. 
And that's the reason that this account does not end with the woman simply walking away, having been healed of her discharge of blood, because the Son of God did not come to earth to simply help us with our ailments. He came to claim for himself sons and daughters, to lift us up from the chains of sin and uncleanness and shame, and to love us forever. And you may go to him too. You may go to him now. He is just as accessible to you as he was to this woman, and just as anxious to find you and call you son or daughter when you put your faith in him. Who is Jesus? He is the one who is not embarrassed or surprised at your uncleanness. He's the one who thinks you matter. He's the one who loves you. He's the one who loves you so much that he will take on the impurity of sin and the shame and he will be alone, and his blood will flow for you. God, we thank you that there is such a person in this world. Someone that we can go to in all of our uncleanness in embarrassment and shame simply falling in a heap before his feet completely helpless completely broken and without hope in the world and find out incredibly that we matter to him that he'll stop everything to raise us up, call us son, call us daughter, give us life and a name and a father and hope. Thank you that there not only is such a person, but that this person has been revealed to us in beauty and truth, that we might seek him out even today. <laughs> 